Alrighty. My name is Lyle. I'm one of the pastors here and just want to say welcome. So today we're uh, continuing our study in Ex- Esther. Uh, and so I encourage if you've got a Bible uh, to flip open to Esther. Chapter 6 is where we are. If you don't have a Bible, the passage is in your bulletin as well as on the screen. And so if you're able, I want to encourage you to stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. So Esther chapter 6, starting in verse 1 and reading down to verse 10. So that night, sleep escaped the king, so he ordered the books, the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. And they found uh, the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana, that's a great name, Bigthana, whatever, huh? Uh, and Therese through the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Xerxes. And so the king inquired, what honor has, and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act? And the king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. And so the king asked, uh, who's in the court? Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's attendant answered him and said, Haman is there standing in the court. And so have him enter, the king ordered, and Haman entered. And the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? And Haman thought to himself, who is it the king would want to honor more than me? So Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse that the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. But the garment... And the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. And have them clothe the man the king wants to honor. And parade him on the horse through the city square. And proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. And the king told Haman, hurry. Do just what? Do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse from Mordecai the Jew. It was sitting at the king's gate. Don't leave out anything you have suggested. The irony is thick, is it not? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we give thanks to the dads that have had an enormous influence in our life and has shaped us in profound ways. And in weep and mourn and grieve those who have um, been wounded severely by their dads. And may this day remind them um, that our Heavenly Father is the perfection of our earthly dads, not a reflection of our earthly dads. And I do pray that that truth helps us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Maybe seated. So here's what I want to do just for a few minutes here. Uh, it might be a little longer than a few minutes. A few minutes is, is subjective, amen. Um, I, I want to talk about pride. And I know it's Father's Day, and sometimes you feel like, ah, here I come on a Father's Day, and I feel like I'm going to get hammered, all right? But my, uh, my goal in any time I preach is not to hammer anyone, all right? Um, I want to be helpful. And so, um, so sometimes to be helpful, uh, it's got to sting a little bit. So shots are not pleasant, you know, if you go to a, a doctor in order to get some kind of shot to deal with an illness or to get, prevent an illness, whatever. Um, those can sting, but they are really helpful. And remember, you know, I say this quite often, but I'm a dad. So whatever I'm saying to dads, I'm also saying to me, you know, so I... I haven't arrived. God's still at work in me, and I still got a lot to grow in and a lot to learn. And so, in some ways, I'm trying to visualize myself sitting there and listening to myself, which would be really hard. I'm just telling you. So, but I'm trying my best. Just not because of the content, more of the the annoyance of a voice. You know, what I'm saying it's like you can't hear, help, be annoyed by hearing yourself speak. So, um, but I am a dad, and this message um, is one that I need to hear. So. When we work through the book of Esther, you've got to spend at least one sermon dealing with Haman. Because Haman's the villain in this book. 
Esther's sort of the hero, obviously, and Haman's the villain here. And so you, you need to spend at least one sermon talking about Haman. And most commentators and most scholars would say that Haman's kind of the poster child for pride. He's the most vivid, illustrative story that we have in all the Bible of what happens to a person if pride remains unchecked in their life. Now, at first glance, if you've read into the book of Esther, you may not think that Haman's issue is pride. You know, self-conceit, arrogance, narcissism. Some of those words may come into play, uh, and you may not first think about pride. But underneath all of those words I just mentioned, at the root of those is pride. And let me show you where I, where I get this. There, there are two places in all the book of Esther where the author um, expresses that Haman was filled with rage. And so what's behind that? What's going on there? What is, what is filling Haman with rage? The first one is in chapter 3, verse 5. We read this last week with, as if you were with us, and it says this. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying homage to him, here's the word, he was filled with rage. And we remember from last week, this kind of you know, set in motion the events to where Haman went to the king and said, hey, let's wipe out this population group that's causing problems in your kingdom. King Xerxes didn't know who that population group was, and it's the Jews. He didn't want to just kill Mordecai. He wanted to kill the people that Mordecai was a part of. But the reason why there's rage being filled up in Haman is because Mordecai refused to bow to pay him honor, to recognize his position in the kingdom. We see it again in chapter 5, verse 9. That day Haman left, full of joy and in good spirits. And the context there is that, you know, uh, King Xerxes granted the request of Esther for her to come in the presence of him. And she asked, hey, I want to do a banquet for you and, and Haman. And so they did that banquet, did a little dinner. That's what happened in the first part of chapter 5. And so Haman's leaving that, full of joy and excitement and good spirits and look what it says there but when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate and Mordecai didn't rise again or tremble and fear his presence Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai so there it is again filled with rage why because one man is not honoring you one man is not giving you what you think you deserve and what you want and it consumes him so much that he's unable to find joy in other things of life. That's what he says here in verses 11 through 13 in chapter 5. He goes back and shares all this with his wife and some of his buddies. And then look what it says here. Then Haman inscribed for them this glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him and rank over other officials and the royal staff. And what's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I'm invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me. All these great things that are happening in my life, so to speak, but none of them give me contentment and joy. Why? since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate all the time and not giving him the honor that Haman believes he deserves. So at first glance, you know, most of us think that that doesn't sound like pride, right? Just like I said earlier, it sounds more like arrogance and narcissism and, you know, conceit, whatever. But C.S. Lewis has a great little chapter in his book uh, uh, called Mere Christianity. And the chapter is called The Great Sin, which is all about pride. And a lot of my message today is kind of gleaned from that chapter. So anything profound and amazing, and if I don't give reference to C.S. Lewis, just know that it's C.S. Lewis and not Lyle Drury. Amen? So, um, but here's how he defines pride. He said, pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. Pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. It's self-obsession. And that's what we see all the time in Haman. Every time he shows up in the story of Esther, everything is about Haman. 
Everyone else plays kind of a supporting part, but the play of life is all about Haman. It's the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. That is what pride is. Lewis goes on and tells us that pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. Did you follow that? Lewis goes on and says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. So someone is not proud because they're rich, smart, or good-looking. They are proud because they are richer. They are smarter. They are better-looking than others. And so if there is one, more, one person in all the world that's smarter, richer, better-looking, or one person who's not giving you the kind of deserving honor and respect, then that becomes your enemy and your rival, and it consumes your life. You're unable to see all the other joys in life because you've got this one person. It's a comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. And that's what you see in Haman. And that's what is pride. Now the difficulty with this example is that Haman's such an extreme, right? I mean... I don't know if any of you guys read the book of Esther over the last few weeks. If you haven't, I still encourage you to do that. It's just 10 chapters. But I guarantee you this, hopefully, before this sermon, how about that? I guarantee you this, none of us have read the book of Esther and go, I'm like Haman, right? None of us are are identifying ourselves easily with Haman because he's such an extreme. It's like, man, God, please, may I not be like Haman, right? That's what you're saying. You know, you're going, oh, I'm probably a little bit like Esther or maybe a little bit like Mordecai. I'm nothing like Haman. So the the difficulty with pride, especially within this story, is that this is an extreme case of it. And so it's hard for us to identify. And some have argued, and I agree with this, that, that pride is the carbon monoxide of sin, that it's difficult to detect in you, but all the while it's killing you, right? It's difficult to detect and smell pride in you, but all the while it is killing you. It's the one sin that, uh, that we see in other people, but it's really hard to see in ourselves because all other sin is really, uh, most sins are known. Like you know it, right? You know when you're lying and you don't have to guess that. You know when you're gossiping. You know when you're stealing. You know when you're harboring bitter feelings towards someone. You know when you're doing adultery right? Nobody in the middle of adultery goes, oh, I didn't know you were my spouse. Oh my gosh, what am I doing, right? Thanks for like the four nervous laughters in that one, but it's so true though. All the sins we know, but pride is so hard to see in ourselves, but really easy to see and smell in others. C.S. Lewis goes on and says this, talking about the difficulty of seeing pride in ourselves. There is no fault which makes a person more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. Isn't that true? Pride makes an individual hard to be around. You don't want to be around them. But it's so hard to see it in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Interesting. The more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. You see, pride can take on some subtle forms here. The one I think we always recognize is kind of the superior form of pride where we look down on people. You know what I'm saying? I'm better than them and got to be better than them, got to be smarter than them, richer than them, whatever. Like the superiority element where we kind of look down is still a focus on self, right? Another aspect of pride is kind of more the inferiority element of pride it's kind of like what we would call false humility to where we're always self-diminishing you know we always kind of playing down ourselves where we're always kind of like you know play sort of the victim card woe is me and so that's a form of pride because why you're still focusing on you and pride is this overly inward focus on yourself And so to help us, right, 
to identify this in our own lives. Because I think it's extremely important that we do this. Here are a few questions, all right? That hopefully we can see is sort of the level of pride that is present in us. They're on the, on the screen here. So how much do I dislike it when other people look down on me? Or if that doesn't help, how much do I look down on other people who look down on other people, right? That's pride. How much does it bother me when someone refuses to take notice of me? Who refuses to appreciate me? Who refuses to give me the thanks that I deserve? If those don't hit you, Here's another way of looking at it. How many of us in this room, not by show of hand, because that might be too much right now, uh, especially because as I get to the end of what I'm going to say, you go, oh, gosh, I wish I'd have put my head down, right? How many of us in this room, as I've been talking about pride, have thought about someone else who should be here this morning in order to hear a sermon about pride, right? Man, I wish so-and-so was here. Dude, they need to hear this message today. Maybe. I'll shoot a little email with the link or the text and say, this would be a blessing for you today, right? Look, it takes a certain amount of pride to come to this point in the sermon and think about someone else and not think about yourself. So what I'm trying to say here as best I can in like five minutes that I've been trying to do this, look, pride is everyone's problem in here. Whether you recognize it or not, it's at play in you. And it's, it's extremely important that we don't dismiss this and think, that's not my problem. Because if you dismiss it and say, that's not my problem, then this is what pride will do. Give you a couple things, all right? Pride will make you a fool. And you read the book of Proverbs and it doesn't look good for the fool. Pride makes you a fool because you'll never learn from your mistakes. Because if a relationship goes bad, a job doesn't work out, you don't get a grade that you wanted in class, whatever it is, you don't learn from your mistakes because it's always someone else's problem. It's always someone else's fault. You're always kind of playing the victim, so to, so to speak. You're always justifying yourself. And that makes you a fool because you don't learn from your mistakes. Pride makes you fool not only by not learning from your mistakes, but you can't hear critique. You don't take counsel. You don't take advice. One of the best ways that you can grow as a human being is to be an individual that can hear critique. Hear someone say, hey, this is what I'm seeing in you. This is some of the problems. This is how you come off. This is how people experience you. If you can't hear critique, listen to me, it's because of pride. You'll dismiss it, you'll attack them, or you'll go to the other extreme where it devastates you, wrecks your world for a month or a day or a week. And what's that play there? Pride. If it goes unchecked, it will make you a fool and you'll make some really bad decisions in life. Bad decisions on who you date, who you marry, what schools you go to, what jobs you take, what jobs you step out of. All these have at play pride. So not only does it make you a fool, but here's the one that's, I think, kind of climactic or the, where it takes us. It will destroy you. And not only will it destroy you, it will destroy the relationships around you. If pride goes unchecked, it will destroy you and we see this over and over throughout the bible and specifically in proverbs i'll give you three in the book of proverbs proverbs 11 verse 2 says this when pride comes then what then comes disgrace proverbs 16 18 says this pride goes before destruction proverbs 18 12 before his downfall a man's heart is proud and this is why most scholars and most commentators will say that Haman is sort of the, the vivid case study of where pride takes you left unchecked. It will destroy 
their life. And that's what we see here. I mean, the irony of all this is so thick, and you probably felt it as we read through chapter 6 there. But at the end of chapter 5, after he kind of complained to his wife and his friends, they make a decision to build some gallows uh, to, in order to kill Mordecai, in order to hang him on, on it. So they, they say build a 75-foot gallow in order to hang Mordecai on 75 feet. Is, that is tall. A, a normal standard telephone pole is 40 feet tall. So you just double that. And then the other thing I was thinking about as I was coming in this morning, man, they're amazing how quickly they built it. They're like Amish people building a barn, right? Man, it's like, you ever seen Amish people build a barn? It's like one day, boop, there's a barn. It's like, you guys are unbelievable. But overnight, somehow, a group of people build this massive gallows that you could see from very far away, right? And that was built in order to hang Mordecai from. So the plan was for Haman is to get up in the morning, go to King Xerxes, and say, hang Mordecai from this. And then there was an unexpected reversal. The king couldn't sleep. And look what happened in verse 1, chapter 6. That night sleep escaped the king, so he ordered the books of recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. The king couldn't sleep, so he had a very boring book read to him. I, that's what I think. You know, I don't, so, yeah, that, he might have needed that to go to sleep. I don't know, but that, that sounds really boring. Okay, the book of records, it's like reading the almanac or the encyclopedia. It's like, rah. All right, but he couldn't sleep. They read this to him. In the reading of this, they find out that Mordecai is one of those guys that saved his life. He asked him, hey, what has been done for Mordecai to kind of repay him for saving my life? That's kind of a big deal, you know. And the guys say, hey, nothing has been done. And then, then in this moment, in this discussion, Haman appears. And what's Haman trying to do? Get King Xerxes to let him hang Mordecai. And the king goes, who's out in the court, uh, gates? Oh, Haman's out there. Bring him in. I got a question for him. What do you, should I do, Haman, if I want to honor someone? And what does Haman think? What's his first thing, thought? He must want to honor me, right? Why? Because Haman's a prideful person. Just like every one of us in this room, including me. And then in verse 8, look what happens. This is what he says to do in response uh, to the question the king gave. So I have them bring a royal garment out. It's important for us to remember that. I'll, I'll come back to that at the end. You can also translate it royal robe. It's an important key little point in the text here. Have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and, the, and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor and prayed him on that horse to the city square and proclaimed before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. And then in verse 10, can you imagine like what went on inside of Haman when he hears this? Then the king told Haman, hurry, do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew who was sitting at the king's gate. And then in verse 11, so Haman took the garment and the horse and he clothed Mordecai, paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. The very day Haman goes to the king to get permission to kill Mordecai is the very day the king says, go grab Mordecai, put my robe around him and parade him through the city and scream and yell in front of him, this is what the king does to the one he wants to honor. All to the humiliation of Haman. He goes home, complains to his wife. He comes back because he's got to have this banquet between Esther and king and Haman. So there's this chapter 7. Go home and read the first part. This is where the, the plot that Haman had you know, put together to kill all the Jews gets exposed. The king is pretty fired up about it. And this is how Haman dies. Look what it says in verse 9 of chapter 7. Harbana, one of the king's eunuchs, said, there's a gallows 75 feet tall. We could see it from here, right? At Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. And the king said, hang him on it. And they hanged Haman on the gallows 
he had prepared for Mordecai, and then the king's anger subsided. A tragic ending, but also a, a brutally graphic lesson that God always opposes the proud, and pride always leads to destruction. Always. Now, I get it, guys. This is an extreme case. I get that. But you've got to understand, too, that this story is preserved in part for us here in 2019 to hear this and heed the warning that needs to be spoken from this page. And that warning is this. If pride goes unchecked in your life, if you sit here and think, I don't have a pride problem, look, you have a pride problem. And if you allow yourself to be blind to your own pride, this is the path it will take you on. It will destroy your life. And it will destroy the relationships around you. God always opposes the proud. So what are we to do with this law? What are we to kind of take uh, from this? And this is kind of where I want to just spend a few moments and land the plane. So, this being Father's Day, I do want to speak to dads specifically. I think what I'm getting ready to say is pertinent for all of us in this room, but I do want to kind of narrow the application. So it doesn't mean everybody can go to sleep right now except for dads. Everybody stay with me, but I am narrowing the application uh, to dads. I think one of the greatest challenges for dads, fatherhoods, whatever you want to say here, is learning to die to our own pride and learning to die to ourselves so that we can give our lives away to our spouse, our kids, and ultimately God himself. I'll say it again. I think one of the greatest challenges for dads, and I'm talking to myself, is for us to die to our pride, to die to ourselves, in order for us to give our lives away to our spouse, our kids, and ultimately God himself. Ronald Rollheiser has a book called Sacred Fire. I would recommend you to read that, but you need to read it with discernment, all right? That's all I'm saying, discernment, not sermon, discernment. I think I might have said sermon there. But in his book, he um, does a really good job of kind of giving a paradigm of understanding your own spiritual development. And he, this paradigm is, is divided up into three stages. And it's really helpful for us to think about our own spiritual development in these stages because sometimes what happens to us uh, is that we want to um, live in another stage <laughs> that's past. And that can be really um, detrimental to you, right, as an individual and detrimental to the relationships around you. And that's kind of when, you know, you can define that as midlife crisis. Midlife crisis is what I want to leave the stage I'm in and go back to stage one. Okay, you can't do that. <laughs> That's just not very wise. All right, so here are the three stages uh, that he lays out for our own spiritual development. So uh, from your teens to 20s is stage one, and that can be characterized by saying it's a time where you're getting your life together. So it's a time of, you know, you're, uh, you're finishing up school or you're in school, you're in a trade school. You're just trying to figure out what in the world am I going to do to pay the bills, so to speak, or what am I going to do to kind of, with this passion and these desires that I have, you know, how am I going to, you know, what vocation career, that's what you're kind of doing during this time. You're trying to make decisions of whether you're going to get married or not get married and who you're going to get married to. And it's, it's, you know, it's a, a, a season that's characterized by ex excitement and a lot of angst, right? It's like, I want to prove myself. Ah! You know, you just... You don't even realize this angst. It's just in you, man. You're just like oh, all over the place. And so if you're in that age group, I love you. We were all in that age group at one time. So that's stage one. And then stage two, you kind of get um, giving your life away, which is from your 30s to your 70s. And the last stage is giving your death away, which is 70 plus until the Lord takes you home. What I want to do just for a minute here is to look at stage two. That's the longest stage could span 40 to 50 years and it can be the most difficult and hard stage because you're taking on a lot of responsibilities that are really weighty when you're in your teens and your 20s you can fly by the seat of your britches and you can eat a lot of ramen noodles at mcdonald's every night and it doesn't do anything to you amen right i mean if it's just you and your wife ah we got it baby we can do whatever we can 
We can live on nothing, right? It's, but then you get a family, get a mortgage, got a lot of responsibilities, and it's a lot of weight, and that can span about 40 years. Rollheiser says this in this book. He writes this during this season, this kind of giving your life away. It's kind of a long quote, so kind of bear with me. We've got it on the screen. The supper gets cooked only if we do the cooking. And the mortgage gets paid only if we earn the money. We're in charge. We are responsible. We carry the car keys, the house keys, and the debt for both. The major load is on our shoulders, and sometimes it feels as if we are on a treadmill with no way of stepping off. Consequently, all too often, despite the privilege of being young, being healthy, being in charge, it is easy to feel burdened, taken for granted, unappreciated, and used by others. You see how pride can come in this season of life? All of these negative feelings can weigh us down for long periods during our adult years and can make us fall asleep to something that we will wake up to only when it's too late. Namely, that these years when we were young and healthy and in charge are the best years of our lives. There's something worse than having too much to do. And that is having nothing to do or too little to do of importance. When we, we will be a lot more awake to that fact when we sit in a retirement home, stripped of youth, health, and our car keys, knowing that all of those years when we thought we were being taken for granted were years of privilege that were laden with potential for joy that because of our unawareness of privilege, we never quite picked up on. I think everything that Rollheiser says in this long quote can be summed up in the words of Jesus when he says this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's easy to say that. It's difficult to believe, and it's almost impossible to live. I don't know of a, a better verse that can confront our pride and our self-absorption than this. It is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, pride whispers in your ear, it's better to take, to receive, to achieve, to make a name for yourself at the expense of your family. It's pride which tells us that in serving others, giving our lives away, we're being used and taken for granted. It's pride that tells you that your duties and responsibilities, they're slowing you down. They're holding you back. Get rid of them. It's pride that tells you that you should embrace your truth and live for your own happiness. And if you listen to those whispers and if you listen to those voices, it is at your expense because pride always ends in a great fall. It destroys you and it destroys the relationships around you. Okay, Lyle, thanks for making me feel really good on Father's Day, right? <laughs> Told you, I'm a dad also. So what am I to do with this? What am I to do with my pride? And I'm, I'm praying that you see your pride. I'll try to convince you of that. So what am I to do with it? Well, I would not be doing you a service if I said, hey, go home and don't be Haman and be Esther. Go home and don't be Haman, be Mordecai. Because I don't need just an example. If I just sent you home and said, hey, pursue the virtue of humility without the power of, to pursue the virtue of humility and kill the vice of pride, then all I'm doing, right, all I'm doing there is pouring oil on pride. Are you following me? 
Because you can walk out of here and say, all right, man, I'm going to really work hard on things, and I'm going to go for it, and I'm going to, you know, stop doing this and start doing that, and maybe you'll have some success and some other sins that you're dealing with. But all the while, if you're trying to pursue humility and fight off pride without the power of doing it, then any success you do is you're just putting a big old log on the fire of pride. A religious person is a very prideful person, and they're blind to their own pride. And so that's not the answer. I'm not telling you, hey, go out here and do it on your own. And that's not the purpose of what we see here in Esther. So here's what we do with our pride. This is not an exhaustive list, all right, because we only have so much time. I'm going to give you two, all right? The first one is this, is that we must admit that we are prideful or personalize it. I admit that I'm a prideful individual. And if you can't see that you are a prideful individual, then you are a prideful person. And you can't know God. The only way that we have the power to pursue humility and deal with the pride that's present in our life is when we're in relationship with God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. That's the only power that will help us through this so that we're not stoking up the prideful heart. You all right? You with me? But listen to me. If you don't recognize that you are prideful, then you cannot know God. Because the first step to the kingdom of God, the first step for you to be in relationship with God is you've got to... Admit that you are a sinner, that you are broken, and it takes a ton of humility to own that reality in your life. C.S. Lewis says it like this, a proud person is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down you cannot see something that is above you. And who's above you? God. And this is more than just like a, a Christian subculture of, I believe in God. No, I'm talking a specific, particular person. And that person is Jesus God in the flesh that God took on flesh and at great cost to himself came and died for your pride and for my pride and it takes a ton of humility to believe in that God it's easy to give belief in a very general God and that's not who I'm talking about I'm talking about the God of the Scriptures who took on flesh and came at great cost to himself to die for your pride. And when you believe in that God, it humbles you. And that's the first step. I got to admit, I'm a prideful person. Secondly, then you remember, and this is a continual remember, not a one-time remember, right? Right? This is like tie a string on your finger. Whatever you got to do, put it in your phone as the, the task that pops up all the time. Ding, ding, don't forget this, don't forget this. This is, that's what I mean here. Continual remember, listen. Remember that I've already got a robe. Remember that I've already been given a robe. And I know that sounds really strange and weird for a lot of us in this room. When we hear robe, we think of a bathrobe, Right? Or for me, it's a house coat, right? I love my house coat in the wintertime. I just, I do, I love it. You guys gave me one uh, for my 49th birthday, and it was a beautiful gift. I wore it all throughout the winter and took pictures and sent it to my staff sometimes, so, which was kind of weird, but we love each other, amen? But uh, in this time, a robe had um, great significance. It isn't just a bathrobe and very insignificant in our culture, but in this time, it had great significance. And it meant more than just a, a promotion, so to speak. So we remember, guys, remember, what was, what was at the center of Haman's request? I told you to remember this little phrase. What was at the center of his request? 
He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for a promotion because he was already second in command, right? He couldn't be king. Like, that would not go well, right? So what did he ask for? He asked that the king's robes, the king, the robe that the king wore be put on him. That was at the center of the request for Haman. Why? Why was that the thing that Haman want? Because robes was more than just a promotion. In Genesis chapter 41, uh, Pharaoh gave his robes to Joseph, which basically means that he's sharing in his kingdom, that he's taken delight in Joseph when he gave him his robe. If you go to 1 Samuel chapter 18, you'll see that Jonathan gave David a robe, and in giving that robe, he's basically saying to him, I love you, and I want to give my inheritance as a king to you. And so whenever the king is putting his robes on someone, it's not just a promotion. It's not just giving them honor. It's basically saying this, that I delight in this person, that I love this person. And so what Haman is thinking, right, is this, is that if I can get the king's robes on me and be worn by me, then I'll know and everyone else will know how much I'm loved and valued by the great king. I will know and everyone else will know how much I'm loved, how much I'm valued, how much I'm delighted in by the great king. Which is what every single one of us in this room want. As one writer puts it, this is our desire. This is what drives us. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. You get that? The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. That's why even as a grown man, if your dad is still living, and they come to you and say, boy, I am proud of you. You are doing a good work. You are doing a good job. I can come and tell you that. It means a little bit, but it's pretty minuscule. But when your dad, someone of value and worth, comes to you and says that, it does something in your interior world, not only when you're 8, but when you're 78. That's what Haman wanted. I want the praise of the praiseworthy. I want the love of the one who should be greatly loved, right? I want the value of the one who's most valuable. I want the delight of the one who's most delighted in, in this kingdom. That's what I desire, and it's a want that we all have. The problem with Haman is he wanted it from the wrong king. And we can have it in and through the right king, and that is King Jesus. That when we come to faith in Christ, when we receive Him, He puts on a garment, a robe around you. It's a robe of righteousness. Picture that for a second. A robe of righteousness that none of us in this room deserve. Not one person in this room. You know what Isaiah was prophesying in 61.10? When he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord, I exalt in my God. For what has he done for me? He has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. It's a foreshadowing what Jesus is going to do for his children. So if you're in Christ, I don't give a rip, nor does God give a rip what you did this week. You are robed in the righteousness of Jesus. You have honor. He delights in you. He loves you. The glorious one has loved you and delighted in you. The, the, he is praising you. The praise worthy. I'm getting praise from the one that is worthy of all praise. I'm getting love from the one who is worthy of all love. In John 17 Jesus says this in his prayer for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, and that's a prayer for us. He says this, I have given them the glory that you gave me. What in the world is Jesus talking about? That he has given us the glory that God has given Jesus. Do we walk around here like glowing, right? If we turn off all the lights in here, all those in Christ be glowing, right? I mean, 
Sometimes we listen to them and go, I don't even know what he's talking about. But here's what he's saying. Glory means weight. It also means joy, honor, and delight. The praise of the praiseworthy is yours. I don't have to fight for it anymore. At the root of a ton of pride in our life is deep insecurity. And here's what. This is how we deal with it. This is, this is not a, like a one-time thing. This is a continual work that will happen in your life. You've got to recognize and remember that you've been robed. So then, therefore, I don't have to get it from someone else. I don't have to get my value and my security and my love and my worth from my job. Which a lot of dads in this room, that's where we find it. I feel valued here i feel worth here and so we give our lives to our jobs at the detriment of our children and our kids who need a dad in their life all because you're forgetting that you already are robed you got value you got worth you've got security you are robed in the righteousness of jesus and i'm telling you guys i'm telling you dads including myself, when that gets in you, when it becomes the operation system of your life, it changes you. It changes not only you, but it changes your family. That's why some dads, when they go to a t-ball field or they go to a ball game or whatever, it's always like this mixture of like joy and hatred, right? And what I mean by that is sometimes, whether we realize this or not, the reason why they're in a sport is because of you, not them. And how do I know that? Well, how do you feel when they blow it? How do you feel when your kid strikes out in coach's pitch? That happened to me, right? How does that work for you? Depending on what's going on in your interior world, will tell you a whole lot about whether that's for them or for you. I've told this story before. It kind of came to me in the middle of the sermon, and I asked for permission afterwards, and Apologize to Conlon. He said he was fine. He doesn't remember any of it. But I, I've told this story with you guys before. But uh, he was on a swim team one summer a few summers ago. It's it back when he was about five years old. And our kids had not had any swim lessons. You know, they just get in there and just learn how to swim. And we tried to help him a little bit. But, but at this time, Conlon hated to put his face in the water. Like, he just absolutely hated it. I mean, he just freaked him out. Wouldn't do it. That's just a constant thing. Put your face in the water. Put your face in the water. Put your face in the water. No! I won't put my face in the water. Blah, 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 blah. And so this is how he would swim. I mean, if you don't put your face in the water, you're just doggy paddling. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're vertical. you got to get your face in the water and get horizontal. So this is how he would swim. On the swim team. How stinking embarrassing, right? Oh, my gosh. It was ridiculous. Like, put your stinking face in the water. So we went to the very first meet, and I had no clue what was going on. Kathy was somewhere else, which is always dangerous if I'm going somewhere by myself without her. Right? I knew it was a bad thing not having her with me. I'm sure she had something really important to do. But, so we got to this meet. I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing. I'm like a new parent here. So the, this, the, the, the coach came over and got a group of little preschoolers, including my son. They go off into the pool. And so I wasn't even sure if he's going to be able to race this day. I didn't know what was going to happen there. She comes back and says, okay, he's done. So I thought, okay, we're done. He doesn't get the race. And the reason why he doesn't get the race is because he's swimming like this. Right? So here I am, man. I'm, I'm, I'm literally, to my shame, in his face. The reason why we're not racing today is because you swim like this. Stop swimming like this. Get your sticking face in the water. Get your face. Nothing wrong. It's just water. It's water. It's not going to drown you. Get your face in the water. We got to go because you didn't get your face in the water. We can't even race and race. So we get in the car. Man, I'm just I'm going off on him the whole way home. Just going off on him. So obviously, man, thank God for the grace of God, you know. Came back home later that night, apologized to him because that had nothing to do with him. What did that have to do with? All me. It was all me of how they were looking at me as a dad when I've got a kid who swims like this. What is that? That's pride. And my pride wounded my kid. On top of that, we come back to practice the next morning. And the coach came over and said, where did you guys go? I said, well, I, I thought we were done. He said, no, that was warm up. <laughs> oh, my gosh, man. So humiliating. 
Listen, dads. You don't have to seek security, love, value, and worth. It's already yours if you're in Christ. And to the depth that you know and believe this to be true is the capacity to which you can give your life away and be a blessing to your wife and kids. And pride begins to lose its grip in your life. Let's pray. So, Father, my deepest desire is that this would be helpful for all of us in this room and specifically for dads. And may we remind ourselves of the goodness of our Father who is not shocked by what He sees in our lives. But help us to to bring this to you with honesty. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So as we end our service, there's a couple things. First is communion. This is always the time in our service for those who are Christ followers to come forward, break a piece of bread off, dip it in wine or juice, whichever your conscience permits. The wine is always marked by twine. Uh, But this meal is just for followers of Jesus Christ. If you're not a follower of him, if you're not a Christian, then I don't mean this in any kind of like mean way. I just say this meal is not for you, but that we would encourage you to take Christ, that you would put your faith and trust in him. The second thing I'm going to encourage us to do is if you're a dad in this room, And if there's something that stirred in you through what you heard, if there's some stuff going on in your life, I just want to encourage you to ask for prayer. So we've got some dads in the back that would count it as a privilege to pray with you. Um, We do this on Mother's Day, and we have a ton of moms that go to get prayer. We do it on Father's Day. We have a few. I don't know. I think that tells us something. I think one of the ways that you can embrace humility and deal with the grip of pride in your life is to go ask for help. And prayer is one of the most vulnerable places that you can go and ask for help. These are men that I would say, boys, live like them. They're not perfect men back there by any stretch of the imagination, but they love Jesus, and they would count it as an honor to pray for you whatever's going on in your life. So dads, as we're taking communion, You can go back there and and say, hey, this is what's going on, man. Would you pray for me? So when you guys are ready to take communion, you can stand up and come forward.